This is a Rooster Teeth production. March 3rd, 1974. Turkish Airlines Flight 981, a McDonnell Douglas DC-10 with 346 people on board, is taken off from Paris's Orly Airport, bound for London's Heathrow Airport. The normally empty flight is filled to the brim with passengers due to a strike affecting some British airlines. Due to the extra passengers, the flight takes off 30 minutes late and begins climbing in an easterly direction before turning north. The flight is cleared to flight level 230, but when crossing through about 10,000 feet, the plane suffers from explosive decompression. The crew struggles to control the plane, but the plane slams into the ground, killing all on board. Shockingly, this is not the first time a DC-10 has suffered this type of decompression. How did this deadly flaw slip through the cracks? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Black Box Down. It's Gus and Chris. Good morning, Chris. Good morning. Before we get into it, as always, you guessed it, I'm going to talk about our merch and uh, Black Box Down Animated. Don't forget, we've got some brand new merch out at store.roosterteeth.com. Uh, we've got the Your Bad Attitude Has Upset Me mug and shirt, as well as uh, Podcaster My Co-Pilot bumper sticker. That's not a new one, but I really like that one. And just regular Black Box Down logo yeah. and other cool stuff. I think it's all pretty cool. And you go check that out, like I said, at store.roosterteeth.com. Follow us on social media at Black Box Down Pod. We've got link trees there. Uh, Chris loves the link tree <laughs> that points you to everything uh, like the store points you to like our animated black box down aviation explanation episodes which are fantastic please check them out if you haven't and yeah so today we're talking about Turkish Airlines flight 981 it was a passenger flight from Istanbul Turkey to London with an intermediate stop in Paris back on March 3rd 1974 the flight was crewed by Captain Najat Berkaz who was 44 years old with 7,000 flying hours. First officer, Oral Ulusman, who was 38 with 5,600 flying hours. And flight engineer, Erhan Ozer, who was 37 with 2,120 flying hours. The airplane was a two-year-old McDonnell Douglas DC-10 with about 2,955 hours. There were eight flight attendants and 335 passengers on board. So relatively new plane, mm -hmm. the DC-10 was. At this time, it was still a, a pretty new plane. That was that uh, people were excited about. It was a like a long haul plane, you know, twin aisle, lots of capacity. It was, you know, it was intended to compete with like the 747, for example, uh, and the Lockheed L-1011, like big planes that move lots of people around. Yeah. And that's a lot of people. Yeah, that's a lot of people. This particular incident has a lot of dubious firsts and a lot of dubious things about it. This was the deadliest incident ever in a plane until the Tenerife accident, where we talk, which we've talked about, where two 747s collided. And I believe it is still the deadliest single plane incident ever. I thought a single plane incident was that one in Japan that hit the mountain. Oh, Japan Airlines. I, I think you're right. This was the deadliest until the Japan Airlines flight surpassed it, which was the 747 that crashed in Japan back uh, in the 80s. Yeah. Before that, this was it. So this was a very, very bad uh, incident. So the flight took off from Istanbul, landed in Paris after an uneventful flight, landed about 10.02 a.m., parked at a gate, and 50 passengers disembarked and the plane refueled. I always think about this when an incident happens mm -hmm. like this where a plane is traveling and stops at a place in between. I don't know how I would feel if I was one of those 50 people who got off the plane. I mean, I'd feel lucky. Yeah, i feel really lucky and like guilty in a way. Yeah. But man, that's got to be crazy to know that like you got off the plane and then Shortly thereafter, you know, there was one of the worst aviation incidents ever happened on it. it. Crazy, too, to think that you got off that plane and everyone that you passed by. Right, yeah. Like, th just... Th <sighs> yeah, they uh, they were all in there. 
So the plane was normally supposed to be in Paris for an hour, you know, as they refueled. But the wait time was increased an additional 30 minutes because of a last minute addition of passengers from British Airways and Air France. Uh, like I said, there was a strike going on at the time. So a lot of planes bound for London had been canceled because of the strike. So a lot of people had to scramble and got on this Turkish Airlines flight. Mm. That also makes me sad. You think about those people who are like, oh, trying to scramble to get to a flight. And I bet you they all thought they were very lucky that they made it onto that one. Right. Yeah, we've all been in an incident like that where, you know, you get a flight canceled and you have to scramble to find another flight. And yeah, you, you feel fortunate. And then it, yeah, it, you don't know what's going to happen. So the crew contacted the airport departure operations at 11, 11 a.m. And they were cleared to taxi to runway 8, 13 minutes later. Flight 981 took off at about 1130 cleared to 6,000 feet, and three minutes later, they were cleared to flight level 230. At about 11.40, the sound of decompression was recorded in the cockpit voice recorder, and the first officer said, the fuselage has burst, mm. followed by the pressurization warning sound. And we've talked about this before. As you climb higher, the air thins out and becomes you know, lower pressure, but the inside of planes are pressurized to higher pressure so that we can breathe, You know, because yeah. we need air. Explosive decompression is when that pressurization escapes it's almost like an explosion with no like no fire no flame it's just you know this high pressure air escaping out to the lower oh, pressure like a balloon right. bursting or something right yeah that's a, that's a good way to think about it so a few seconds later the controller who was assigned to this flight heard a transmission that contained heavy background noise words in turkish the pressurization warning and the overspeed warning at the same time the overspeed warning was heard flight 981 label disappeared from the secondary radar scope but flight level 130 remained on the scope for a few minutes. On the primary radar, the aircraft echo split into two. One part remained oh. stationary about 24 nautical miles northeast of the airport and stayed there for two to three minutes. The second part continued on a path that curved to the left from heading 350 to 280. Wait, what do you mean? The radar? So, like we talked about in uh, that partner episode a few weeks ago, the radar shows two things. It shows, you know, one blip that's kind of staying in place and another one that's that's still moving and curving out to the left. But staying in place in the air? Like, yeah. Not falling, just... So the report's not clear, and I will... I, I feel like this is a good time to clarify. This was an older incident, so reports were written a little different back then. On top of that, it's a French report about a Turkish airline. <laughs> so there's some that's going to be lost in translation and some stuff that was kind of confusing. We did our best to comb through it and figure it all out. This is one of those things where... If I was to speculate, I think that it's just either faulty radar or it's getting a bit of debris on the scope. Okay. Since it's not a plane, it's not reading quite right, and the radar mm -hmm. doesn't know what to make of it. And I'll get more into what I think that is in a bit. I don't want to spoil it yet. Okay. So that's why I'm being a little cagey about it right now. <laughs> <laughs> the transmission from the aircraft ended about 30 seconds after it started. Another transmission was heard a few seconds at 1141, and the controller tried to contact Flight 981 several times with no success. The flight data recorded for this flight shows that immediately after depressurization, the speed of the number two engine dropped sharply and the aircraft started to turn to the left and go into a nose down attitude. Mm. The pilots pulled the throttles back, but the attitude increased to 20 degrees nose down and the speed increased to 360 knots. The pitch attitude then increased to four degrees nose down and the speed reached 430 knots. So they're nosing down and really starting to accelerate and speed up. They're able to pull it back from 20 degrees down to 4 degrees down, but it's still going, you know, pitching down. down. Yeah, and fast. Right, and getting faster. Because obviously, you know, if your nose down and your, your gravity's going to start pulling you down, if nothing else, you know, if you're mm -hmm. nosing down, you're going to start increasing speed. About 77 seconds after the decompression, Flight 981 crashed into the forest of Ermenenville, 
in the commune of Fontaine Chalie. This is about eight nautical miles from the village of St. Pathos, which the plane was flying over when the decompression happened. And how high up were they when it happened? They were at about 10,000 feet. Okay, so not that high. Not super high. They were not at cruising altitude by any stretch of the imagination. They were still climbing up after takeoff. The plane was at a speed of 430 knots when it made contact with the ground and was banked 17 degrees to the left. And it affected an area of about 700 by 100 meters. So that's, you know, a meter is a little over three feet. So let's say 2,200 by 300 to 400 feet, somewhere in that range. Yeah. The aircraft disintegrated on impact with the forest and there were no survivors. The investigation was carried out by the French Ministry of Transport. On the morning of March 4th, the investigators found wreckage of the plane in St. Pathos, and among the wreckage, investigators found the bodies of six passengers who were ejected from the plane during the decompression, oh. along with parts of their seats. So yeah, if you imagine, like, the plane opened up, and we've talked about this, like, people fell out of the plane. We did an episode yeah. with, you know, about people being sucked out of the plane because of decompression. So yeah, they found six passengers who appeared to have, you know, suffered this fate. Investigators also found the lower part of the left-hand aft cargo door with the four latches and their complete control and locking mechanisms and the push rod that controlled the lock tube. The part of the door with the locking handle and the cargo door operating arm were also found. These parts landed in a newly plowed field and were embedded into the fairly soft earth and had little damage from the impact with the ground. Oh, that sounds crazy. Just like thump. Yeah, like the ground had just been tilled. You know, it was plowed recently and yeah, it was just like stuck in there without much damage because it was soft. The ground was soft. I guess that's good for figuring out what happened. Yeah, you know, if you're recreating it and want to examine things, yeah, that's it's, it's good for the investigators. And, you know, they looked through the parts and they found there's no evidence of overheating or fire, but they did find there was an incomplete closing of the door latches and the non-engagement of the lock pins. Oh. So they send these off for further analysis. So, you know, earlier we mentioned that there was another blip on the radar. It could be it was this door. That door or the people? I guess it could be. I hadn't considered that possibility before. But I guess it could have been some of the parts uh, of the fuselage that were sucked out during the decompression. Mm. Based on what I've said so far, does this sound at all familiar to you, Chris? Yeah, it sounds like I can't remember the the episode. It was that one that like where the the, the door didn't lock correctly and it like crunched the thing and it like broke it over time because it wasn't like the door locking mechanism didn't like crunched up all the insides and then broke over time. Exactly. Right? We did a similar episode about United Flight 811. That, of course, was a Boeing 747. This is a Uh DC-10. But so far, based on what they're saying here, it sounds the same. (laughs) It sounds... this And this happened way before. This was 1974. I want to say United 811 was in 1989. So this happened 15 years before the one we've already talked about. Okay. Different plane. But yeah, so far, it's sounding very similar, like a very similar cause was i right about the my memory about it being crunched up the yeah part that connects? Um, it was a little more complicated but the locking mechanism was a soft metal that's what it was it could be forced open yeah even when it was in like in the locked position so if you're curious about that obviously we have a whole episode about that one <laughs> we're going to talk more about this specific incident now and we'll see how similar it is or how if it's dissimilar what episode is that just so people could look it up so that was United 811. The title of the episode was Cargo Door Bursts Open Mid-Flight. Okay. We released that one back in March of 2021, March 11th. So uh, you can go check that one out if you're curious about a similar, well, what looks to be a similar incident so far. And we'll find out. <laughs> oh. So let's dig into this one. Like we said, this is a different plane. That one was a 747. Here we're talking about the DC-10. 
So after some examination, investigators found there was some work done on the cargo door due to a service bulletin being published, but it was not done correctly or completely. Oh. Investigators found a hole on the instruction plate for manual opening of the latch door that was not prescribed by Douglas. Douglas, of course, the manufacturer. A hole? Yeah. The hole was drilled by the airline in order to gain direct access to the drive mechanism, which is an incorrect execution of the service bulletin. What? They just drilled a hole in the plane to... to yeah. That way they could, uh, they could see the drive mechanism, which was not what they were supposed to do. <sighs> also, the link between the locking handle and the vent door shaft was bent, and the additional support plate specified for the vent door shaft had not been installed. The push rod between the vent door shaft and the lock tube was bent, and two crank attachment rivets were sheared. The end of the lock tube was chamfered as prescribed by the service bulletin, but rough file marks and irregular scoring showed that this work was done manually. And chamfering means to like cut away at a right angled edge or to corner it to make a symmetrical sloping edge. So basically, the service bulletin said they were supposed to chamfer it and to like basically grind it down. Uh-huh. But it looked like it had been done manually, like with <laughs> instead of using a machine to do it. Like someone just like with a got a file. The file? Instead of like grinding it down with uh-huh. a with a machine, as you imagine, would be the proper way to do it. And just just because you, there's a lot of things. How many different boo boos was that? Like how many? There was the the vent. There was the door hole. Then there was the incorrectly ground edge. Yes. So in order to properly explain this, I need to rewind time a little bit. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're gonna we're gonna roll back. We're gonna roll back two years before this incident. Oh my god. Two years before this incident, when the DC-10 was even newer, it was a brand new plane, the first ones were rolling off the line, there was a similar incident to this on an American Airlines flight, American Airlines Flight 96. And this incident happened very similar. There was a depressurization. However, in that incident, the pilots were able to maintain control of the plane and they were able to land it. So, you know, they realized that the manufacturer and the FAA realized that there's a problem with the plane and they prescribed a couple of fixes. One of the fixes was that there be an inspection hole so that the ground crew could visually verify that the lock was engaged properly. That's probably why Turkish Airlines drilled this hole. It sounds crazy. I know at first when I said they drilled a hole, you're like, why would they do that? There was a prescribed method for creating a hole in the door to visually inspect and make sure the door was locked. They Mm -hmm. just didn't do it correctly. Okay. There was also, as part of that, a plate to reinforce the lock, should have been installed on the inside of the door. In the end, they discover that the maintenance records for this plane indicate that the plate was installed, but the plate was never installed on this plane. Oh, so it said it was. Right. We're going to dig a little more into that, but I felt I should explain that now, (laughs) just to kind of explain why there was a hole in the door and why some of these things sound kind of crazy. There was an incident that led to some changes being suggested, and that's why some of these things were done. It just turns out some no. of them were done incorrectly mm-hmm. and some of them weren't done, but were marked as being done. Yeah, that's nuts. So anyway, back to current time with the, the Turkish Airlines flight. The striker of the unlock limit switch had two shims surmounted by a third shim with no reference number consisting of a thin crumpled piece of metal leaf with numerous folds on the side, which had to come up against the roller of the unlock limit switch. So the presence of this part was surprising and could only have entailed imprecision and erratic functioning of the switch, which closes the circuit to the latch actuator in the sense of opening the latches only. So that's a mouthful. That's to say, on top of all of this other stuff, 
Maintenance kind of just shoved some pieces of metal as shims in there to try to line up the locks and make them close easier. Oh. Which is not what should have happened. This is, this is not yeah. the way this door is supposed to work. Who just shoved some metal shims in? That just right. sounds crazy. That's like something I would do to fix the door in my house. Yeah, I know. I mean, this what you're describing, like, oh, let's drill a hole so we can look in. It sounds like stuff I would do in my house to, like, work on something. Like, oh, I right. need to look up this pipe or something. I got to cut a hole in the wall. It's like, yeah, but I'm also not in the air. Yeah, you're not. It's in your house on the ground, not, a, not in a plane with hundreds of people. <laughs> and it's not pressurized. Right. So investigators made repairs to the door and found that the striker at the end of the lock tube had 10 shims. Uh, so when the oh. lock tube was pushed toward the lock position, the switch switched off the flight deck warning light, even though the ends of the lock pins were still three millimeters away from restraining the flanges. So these shims were basically there to complete the circuit to turn off the cargo door what? light in the cockpit, even though the lock wasn't fully engaged. That's crazy. So they, they just... Put in, uh, well, there's this warning thing, but if we just, you know, we put these here, it turns off the warning light. Problem solved. Right. It's fine. (laughs) The warning light's gone. Yeah. So like I said, the warning light went off, even though the lock pins were still three millimeters away from their restraining flanges, which is a tiny distance, right? It's not very far. And the maintenance manual shows that the end of the lock pins in the unlocked position must not be more than two millimeters away from the flanges. So the lock limit warning switch was defective and made the pilots unaware the door was not locked. So because of this, these shims, the door unlocked warning in the cockpit didn't illuminate. You know, yeah. it, it showed that the door was locked, even though it was in an unlocked position. Wow. The length of the lock pins were also found to be 7.95 millimeters too short to be fully engaged due to incorrect adjustments that were made. The pins were supposed to protrude 6.35 millimeters beyond the rear face of the flanges, but instead they were stopped short 1.6 millimeters of the rear face. There was supposed to be a mechanism to prevent the handle to be closed when the pins are not aligned, but there was a deformation that allowed the closure. The additional support plate specified in the service bulletin was designed to prevent this deformation, but it was not installed. This is the plate I was talking about. The plate that was supposed to stop this deformation wasn't there. So this is the thing, the deformation is probably what caused the earlier incident, right? Okay, so I didn't do a full deep dive into American 96 because I only wanted to look into it briefly, how it related Uh to this. If I recall properly, yes, off the top of my head without having done the appropriate research, I wasn't prepared for that question. But yes, if going off memory from what I read, I believe it was the deformation that caused the door to burst open in the American Airlines flight. And that's why the metal plate was prescribed here. Yeah. And also the hole was prescribed so that the ground crew could look visually and see that the lock was actually fully Mm -hmm. engaged. So it was like it was a two-step system to combat yeah. this problem. And they did, oh, God. Okay, continue. <laughs> so I'm going to make you a little more mad. Uh, I'm going to go back. To, <laughs> again, I'm going to talk about this American flight just briefly because, like I said, it happened two years before this. And obviously there were some changes recommended that didn't happen here. You know, normally when there's an incident, like with the American Airlines flight, the NTSB makes recommendations and the FAA, you know, submits airworthiness directives to operators of the plane to make sure that they put all of these changes into effect. Since the DC-10 was so brand new, the CEO of McDonnell Douglas was afraid that this would be bad publicity for the DC-10. He didn't want an airworthiness directive going out. So he made what's called a gentleman's agreement with the FAA director Mm -hmm. saying like, hey, if you don't put out an airworthiness directive, we'll under the table talk to all of our operators and make sure they do all of this maintenance. 
So the airworthiness directive never actually went out. Oh. It was kind of like a wink and a like, okay, don't worry, we'll take care of this. But guess what? They didn't. Not every airline took care of it. <sighs> Which is why we're now talking about Turkish Flight 981. Oh. Because of the earlier incident where everyone survived, they learned what the problem was. Then they didn't go through the normal procedure. And we end up in this situation where basically the same thing happens again. Yeah. So like I mentioned, these lock pins were not fully engaged. The forces that would normally be exerted onto the latches was instead transmitted to the two actuator attachment bolts. And these bolts were found to be shorn off from the cargo door. So when the pressure increased during the climb, the bolts gave under the pressure and the latches opened, causing the door to open the decompression to occur. Because these bolts are only supposed to be there to hold the door in place. They're not supposed to hold the pressure in. Yeah. That's what the locking mechanism is for. <laughs> uh -huh. But the locking mechanism wasn't locked, so the bolts take all of the pressure, which they're not designed for, so of course they're going to shear off, and the door flies off, and everything depressurizes. And we haven't talked about this this episode yet, but we talked about this in our previous episode with United 811, where we talked about the way that doors work in planes. Normally, doors, they're called plug doors, where the door opens into the plane, not out. That way, you know, when the pressure's higher inside the plane, since the door's a little bigger, it pushes and reinforces that seal so that the door, you know, closes more tightly. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, like when you walk into a plane, that's the kind of door that you're walking through. However, in this DC-10, you know, when a door opens inwards like that, that eats up cargo space. So for the DC-10, they thought, well, let's have our door open outward. That way we can put cargo all the way to the door. We don't have to worry about leaving space for the door to go in, which is fine. It leaves more space for cargo, but now you have to deal with the pressurization and holding that door in place when you're at altitude and everything's pressurized. Yeah, it's harder. Right. I think your options are either to like not have your cargo compartment pressurized or to really have a secure locking mechanism to hold that door in place and make sure that it works. Okay, anyway, that, that, we're, we're off on a tangent, talking about doors again. <laughs> what is this, Stinky Dragon? <laughs> hey, that's our D&D that's our podcast. That's a that totally different podcast. In 2021, you need a truly diverse portfolio, sure, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, whatever the newest crypto is, but you should also add private real estate. Studies have shown that portfolios with an allocation to private real estate generally delivered a better risk-adjusted return with more annual income and lower volatility over the past two decades. With Fundrise, this level of powerful diversification is now available to you. Fundrise provides access to diversified portfolios of private real estate to all investors with their industry-leading, easy-to-use platform. Whether you're looking to add stable cash flow via dividends or prefer long-term growth through appreciation, Fundrise makes investing in private real estate as easy as investing in stocks, bonds, or mutual funds. It's really good to diversify. I think it's uh, something you should check out if, you, uh, you know, if, you, if you're interested in that kind of stuff. So see for yourself how 150,000 investors have built a better portfolio with private real estate. It takes just a few minutes to get started. Go to fundrise.com slash blackbox down today. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash blackbox down. Fundrise.com slash blackbox down. Blackbox Down is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. You've heard us talk about BetterHelp before. And this month, we're discussing some of the stigmas around getting help with your mental health. Many people think therapy is for so-called crazy people, but going to therapy doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It means you recognize that all humans have emotions and we need to learn to work with them, not avoid them. We take care of our bodies with the gym and the doctor. We should focus on our minds just as much. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. Uh, it's much more affordable than in-person therapy and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. See why over 2 million people have used BetterHelp online therapy. Black Box Down is sponsored by BetterHelp and Black Box Down listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash Black Box Down. 
That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P.com slash black box down. The new year, the time for focusing on new goals, whether you're saving money, learning to cook, or prioritizing your health, HelloFresh has your back with tons of options to make cooking simple and enjoyable. HelloFresh delivers pre-portioned ingredients to your door, including farm fresh produce that arrives within a week, so you get convenience and quality. And HelloFresh has lots of variety. They offer 50 menu items and market items every week, including veggie, calorie smart, family friendly, and gourmet options. Uh, look, they even have recipes that bring restaurant quality to your kitchen. We're talking hibachi, sweet soy, bavette, steak, and shrimp. We're talking white cheddar Wonder Burgers. Make it easier than ever to skip takeout. They've even got desserts like Dunkaroo's cookie dough. So get on it. It's a super fun little project. At the end of my day working, just want to sit down, you know, like 30 minutes, get all my food together, cook it. And then when you're done, you get to eat it. I love it. I think it's super, uh, like a super great way to end my day. I might end my work day, I should say. Uh, and, you know, at the end, you're just like calming, relaxing, and then you get to eat. It's awesome. So go to HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown16. Use code BlackBoxDown16 for up to 16 free meals and three free gifts. That's up to 16 free meals and three free gifts at HelloFresh.com slash BlackBoxDown16. Use code BlackBoxDown16. That's BlackBoxDown and the number one and the number six. So the various pressure relief vents between the cargo compartment and the passenger cabin are not of a size to accommodate a discharge of air as large as what passed through the door when it suddenly opened. So there are some vents, you know, between cargo and the passenger compartment, but they're not very big. The excess pressure caused stresses and damage to the floor, which made parts of the passenger seats and the six passengers located above the door to be ejected. So even though there's vents between the cargo compartment and the passenger compartment, they aren't big enough to accommodate this huge change in pressure instantly, which is why the fuselage got ripped apart and why some of those passengers were ejected. Okay, so the it's the cargo, and then it's then it went to the passenger. Passenger, right? In the American Airlines incident a couple of years earlier, some passenger seats were also pulled out and ejected from the plane, but it wasn't a full flight. There were no people sitting in those seats that were oh. pulled, that were ejected from the plane. Wow! Uh, just pure luck. Wow. But again, we talked about this was a very full plane because of the strike. So there were people sitting in those seats that got uh, ejected from the plane. So a lot going on here. I'm going to talk about some findings here. Normally, we, we address the findings at the end of the episode. I want to talk about the findings here. We think we're kind of in the middle of it. I'm, but I want to talk about the findings now because I think it's important to talk about it right now. In regards to the aft cargo door on the left-hand side... Service Bulletin 52-37 specifying the installation of a support plate designed to prevent forced closings of the locking handle and the vent door in the case of incomplete engagement of the latching system had not been applied to the aircraft before delivery, and this oversight had not been detected at the time of delivery. It was found, however, that work on the application of this modification had begun on the lock tube where chamfering had been roughly carried out. So the fix they should have done had not been done but it seems like maybe some of the work was starting and maybe that's why there was some of that chamfering that had begun on the locking tube. They're not entirely certain about it. Okay, so they're like, maybe they started the work and then got, like, forgot about it and, like, that's, is that what you mean? Like, Right, maybe they started and forgot or maybe they had started and didn't have time to finish and they were like, we'll get to it later. They don't know. It is, you know, this uh, is 1974. Yeah. Records weren't as thorough. The aviation industry was very different back then. The American Airlines flight was two years earlier. Right. When did the call to go and make these changes go out like when if i recall again um that has deals more with the american incident which i didn't fully research for this uh if i recall it was very quick it was just a couple of months after the american incident okay so, so it was probably close to two years before this incident okay so yeah this is a thing that should have been done a long time ago correct to, yeah okay so 
you ask a really good question. And I didn't think about this until right now. Uh, the gears in my head started turning. We keep mentioning this American Airlines flight, which happened in 1972. Mm -hmm. Specifically, that happened in June of 1972. And, uh, you know, they realized what caused this incident and they developed these changes. This Turkish Airlines flight that crashes now two years later uh -huh. was delivered to the airline in October of 1972. Oh. Which makes me start to wonder... What was the timeline? Like, I don't know the specific timeline for when these fixes were recommended. Then you start, I start to wonder, is this a fix that should have been performed at the manufacturing, at the facility where it's built before it's even delivered yeah. to the airline? I think that most likely they were happening at the same time. These recommendations were probably coming out at the same time this airplane was coming off the assembly line. So it was probably delivered right around the time that these changes had to be made. So I don't know. Whose fault that is? Like, that, that, that makes me start to raise more questions. These questions, well, I'm not going to be able to answer these questions. I just thought uh -huh. about this right now. It's interesting stuff. It's, it's like a, they, this airline bought this plane and then they immediately had to start drilling holes. In it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, no, it's our brand new plane. We just painted it. <laughs> it's kind of like, I mean, this is very different, but like you buy something and it's got like a big patch update immediately like eh, i just want like well, yeah when you get a brand new video game yeah. you put it into play and you're like what i've got to download a 40 gigabyte update <laughs> this, <laughs> I got, this should I, work i had drill a hole and put in a plate and yeah so it, it all happened around the same time i'm just trying to I, I build out the time frame for how all of this okay. stuff happened so while the aircraft was in service this is another finding we're still talking about the findings while the aircraft was in service a modification to the drive mechanism had been carried out in a way which did not comply with the service bulletin the adjustments of the lock pins and the lock limit warning switch were incorrect, and the striker of the unlock limit switch had two shims of Douglas origin surmounted by a shim with no reference and a quality not to aeronautical standards. So this is kind of tying into what I said. Two of the shims appear to have come from the factory. Oh. <laughs> yeah, so it's not even on the airline at this point. Now it's like Douglas is the one putting the shims in. So, you know, what's happening here, you know, why was this not done more correctly? Yeah, if this is the actual plant, the manufacturer. Makes the plane. Yeah. So during the aircraft stop in Paris, the aft cargo door on the left hand side had been closed without any apparent abnormality. The locking handle had been pulled down and the vent door closed, although the lock pins were not engaged and no visual inspection had been made through the viewport provided for the purpose of verifying the lock pins were in place. So like a member, I mentioned this viewport was there to verify that the lock pins were in place, you know, was part of the, the recommendations they made. And there's even a little sign next to the viewport. I don't know exactly what it said, but it says to the effect of, you know, manually look in and make sure that the lock is engaged. Uh -huh. The problem is that that sign was written in English and in Turkish, two languages which the baggage handler did not speak. Oh. Because they were in France. I believe the oh, this baggage yeah. handler spoke three different languages, none of which were English or Turkish. So he didn't, he had no idea what that sign said. So the takeoff and climb progressed without incident until the aircraft reached approximately 12,000 feet at about 1140. I said 10,000 feet earlier. There's actually no consensus on where it was exactly. It was somewhere between 10 and 12,000 feet. Okay. At that time, the aft cargo door on the left-hand side opened in flight and became detached from the aircraft structure. The drop in pressure in the cargo compartment caused an immediate pressure differential, which was sufficient to cause the disruption of the floor structure and the consequent ejection of six passengers, their cabin seats, and various pieces of wreckage. They were sucking out the floor? Yeah. Oh my, that's crazy. Yeah, if you think about the cargo compartment yeah. under the, the passenger compartment, so that's where it opens up, like everything gets sucked down. Again, in that American flight, in that American 96 flight, 
you know, everyone, like I said, everyone survived. One of the flight attendants talks about that, about how she had to help another flight attendant who was at the back of the plane. And that flight attendant had to jump over the hole in the floor to oh. get to the front of the plane to, to rejoin where everyone else was. I can't imagine how terrifying that is. That to like, you're on the plane, there's a giant hole in the floor. You're like, <laughs> oh, I need to get over that to get to safety. <laughs> and jumping, because the air would be sucking out. So like jumping over it. Right. Be like be afraid you get sucked out. It might not be at that point once the pressure equalizes. It's mm-hmm. not so much sucking out. It's more like when your car windows open, you know, it's not like it's sucking you out necessarily. Mm. It's just like a lot of wind is passing quickly by. Okay. The deformation and disruption of the floor led to serious impairment of the controls of the number two engine and of the flight controls of which the cables run under this part of the aircraft structure and the damage was such that it was impossible for the crew to regain control of the aircraft. So because, you know, this structure problem, because, you know, part of the fuselage got blown out, it's what broke a lot of the controls for the crew. That's why they lost their number two engine and they had difficulty controlling the plane. Because, you know, we've talked about that, you know, yeah. once you, there's hydraulics, all the electronics, and it was all damaged here because it all ran right through this part of the plane. Yeah, it's like all the cables and it's just, yeah. It's all messed up. And because of the design of the mechanism as a whole, the incomplete application of the service bulletin and the adjustments found on the measurement to be incorrect, it was possible for the door locking handle to be pulled down without the use of any abnormal force and for the flight deck visual warning light to be switched off when the latches were not fully engaged and the lock pins were not in place. So normally, externally, if the door is not locked, the ground crew should not be able to pull the handle down to close the door. But because of all these weird hacks inside the door, they were able to close it without any anything abnormal. And because you know of the shims that were in there, the alert in the cockpit wasn't on. This just sounds so janky, like crazy. Right. So many little things that were done incorrectly. So the accident was a result of the ejection of the aft cargo door on the left-hand side. Uh, the sudden depressurization, which followed, led to the disruption of the floor structure, causing six... Uh, it sounds like I'm repeating. This is all the causes from the, yeah. from the report. Causing six passengers and parts of the aircraft to be ejected, rendering the number two engine inoperative and impairing the flight controls so it's impossible for the crew to regain control of the aircraft. The underlying factor in the sequence of events leading to the accident was the incorrect engagement of the door latching mechanism before takeoff. The characteristics of the design of the mechanism made it possible for the vent door to be apparently closed and the cargo door apparently locked, when in fact the latches were not fully closed and the lock pins were not in place. It should be noted, however, that a viewport was provided so there could be a visual check of the engagement of the lock pins, but like I mentioned, the instructions saying to verify it were written in languages that the ground crew did not understand. I'm surprised they weren't just, oh, this is this, I guess it's a newer plane, so maybe they weren't familiar with it, right? Yeah, it was still relatively new. So they weren't like, oh, you got to look at DC-10s, you got to check the thing. Mm-hmm. Not only was it a newer plane, but remember, this wasn't something that was originally on these planes either. This was something yeah. that was added after the fact. So the defective closing of the door resulted from a combination of various factors. Like we mentioned, there was incomplete application of the service bulletin. Incorrect modifications and adjustments, which led to insufficient protrusion of the lock pins and to switching off of the flight deck visual warning light. The circumstances of the closure of the door during the stop in Paris, and in particular the absence of any visual inspection through the viewport to verify the lock pins were effectively engaged. Although at the time of the accident, inspection was rendered difficult by inadequate diameter of the viewport. So the viewport was also small. Remember I said they didn't do it quite right. They just Mm -hmm. kind of drilled a hole. That was another contributing factor. Finally, although there was apparent redundancy of the flight control systems, the fact that the pressure relief vents between the cargo compartment and the passenger cabin were inadequate and that all the flight control cables were routed beneath the floor placed the aircraft in grave danger uh, in the case of any sudden depressurization causing substantial damage to the part of the structure. So again, they're saying you know there were redundant flight controls, 
you know, in case of a failure, but they all ran right through the area where the depressurization happened. Yeah. And they knew about this. All of this was evidenced by that American Airlines flight that happened two years earlier. Mm. And then that flight as well, they lost their number two engine. They had difficulty controlling the plane, but they managed to land it. So there are, of course, some recommendations. The report addresses two recommendations made by the NTSB after that American Airlines accident. These recommendations were to modify the cargo door locking system to make it impossible to position the locking handle and vent door to their normal door lock positions unless the lock pins are fully engaged. So you can't close the door unless it's locked. (laughs) And to minimize the effect on the flooring in the event of a sudden depressurization of the cargo compartment, the report notes that the modifications applied to this airplane were inadequate and the measure proposed to mitigate the sudden decompression had not been carried out. So after the American Airlines incident, they had recommended more robust vents in case of a depressurization so that the passenger compartment wouldn't collapse like it did again here in the Turkish incident. Okay. Which makes sense. Yeah. Since the accident, the certification authorities and manufacturers have decided to put new procedures and modifications into operation. The commission is of the opinion that their applications should be mandatory and they should be implemented as soon as possible to all aircraft of this type. In general, the commission recommends that in the case of all aircraft, particular attention should be paid to the efficacy of cargo door closing, locking, and checking systems, and also to the behavior of the flooring in the case of sudden depressurization of the cargo compartments. The accident shows the necessary redundancy of the flight controls could be inadequate when the routing of the systems as a whole was concentrated at points where structural damage could occur. So redundant controls are pointless if you're running them all at the same place, like at a weak point. Where, yeah, if if that point breaks, then it's no longer redundant. Mm -hmm. I think about it in the terms of the human body. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, if you think about it, we have redundant ways to breathe. If your nose is stopped up, you can still breathe through your mouth. But uh-huh. in the end, it all comes down through your neck. Like, <laughs> you have, it's redundant, sure, but it's all still going through the same spot. Like, you still, if that gets, you know, blocked, like you're choking, uh-huh. then it doesn't matter. You have redundant ways to breathe. There's still, it's still yeah. a problem. Too bad we never learned to breathe through our butt. <laughs> yeah. Like, that would have been redundant. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, like, like, if you think about it, like, that's the origin of, like, a choke point. <laughs> like, it's because <laughs> that's what we have. Like, it's, it's literally, like, a, where everything comes together. The commission recommends that the training of personnel responsible for operating the cargo doors or checking their closure should be organized in accordance with a detailed program established by agreement between the manufacturer and the airline and approved by official services. So this might speak to what you were talking about. Like, mm-hmm. why didn't the ground personnel know to look in the hole? Now, let's just get them better training and make sure that they know things like this. Yeah. So like I mentioned earlier, after the American 96 accident, there was not an airworthiness directive. And for that reason, the recommended measures were not mandatory and appropriate means were not employed to bring the matter to the attention of those concerned. The commission recommends that the mandatory procedure of airworthiness <laughs> directives, whatever the financial repercussions should be selected whenever safety could be at serious risk. So kind of like, hey, this should have been an airworthiness directive. It's not our problem if McDonnell Douglas has financial repercussions from this. You know, when you're dealing with passenger safety, yeah, a manufacturer's financial repercussions do not matter. You need to make it safe. Yeah. To make this a little worse, so we already talked about this. You know, this incident happened in 1974. The American Airlines one was two years earlier in 1972. To make this even worse, McDonnell Douglas knew about this problem since 1969. What? It happened during their tests when they were making the plane. Oh, my God. It happened in 1969. It happened in 1970 during a ground test. They knew that this was a problem, which is probably why the CEO didn't want an airworthiness directive, which is why he pressured the FAA to just have this informal agreement. Like, yeah, don't worry, we'll fix it. And this information only came to light 
after lawsuits because of the crash of Flight 981. McDonnell Douglas had ignored all of these concerns because McDonnell Douglas considered this to be a small problem with a low probability of occurrence. It would have disrupted their delivery schedule of DC-10s, causing them to lose sales. Because at the time, they were in a fierce competition with Lockheed, with the L-1011 TriStar, with Boeing, with the 747. And if they stopped to try to fix this problem, it would delay them and they would lose out on sales. So they were like, this is probably a problem that's never going to happen. Let's not worry about it. Oh, Let's bury it. Oh, my God. That's so frustrating. Yeah. Uh, and of course, they faced multiple lawsuits because of this incident. Good. Yeah. Uh, and in its defense during pretrial proceedings, McDonnell Douglas attempted to blame the FAA for not issuing the airworthiness directive. What? They blamed Turkish Airlines for modification of the cargo door locking pins, and they blamed General Dynamics for an incorrect cargo door design. But it became clear that none of these defenses were going to prevent a finding of liability. McDonnell Douglas and Turkish Airlines, another party, settled out of court for an estimated $100 million, which is equivalent to about $481 million in 2020 money. It's funny to me that they tried to blame the FAA when it was their own CEO who asked the FAA to not issue an airworthiness directive. Like, yeah. you, should have, you should have known better and you should have stopped us from doing the bad thing we were doing. <laughs> Even though we asked you. <laughs> yeah, we asked you to do it. Uh, uh, granted, they are right. The FAA should still have issued the airworthiness directive. So, I, I mean, I don't blame them for trying, but it was something that they asked for specifically. Yeah. So after the crash of Flight 981, the latching system was completely redesigned to prevent them from moving into the wrong position. The locking system was mechanically upgraded to prevent the handle from being forced into the closed position without the pins actually being in place. And the vent door was altered to be operated by the pins, thereby indicating that the pins themselves rather than the handle were in the locked position. Additionally, the ordered further changes to all the aircraft with outward opening doors, including the DC-10, Lockheed L-1011, and Boeing 747. These changes included requiring vents to be cut into the cabin floor to allow pressure to equalize the event of a blown-out door, thus preventing a catastrophic collapse of the aircraft's cabin floor and other structures that could damage control cables for the engine, rudder, and elevators. And in fact, you probably see the effects of some of this in that United 811 flight we talked about, where there was a catastrophic depressurization. The fuselage still held together for the most part. I think only one person, if I remember right, was sucked out of the plane on United 811. You know, the floor didn't catastrophically crumble. They were able to maintain some control of the plane and they were able to land it. Well, yeah, I mean, that's good improvement you know like they they figured out how to keep the plane together mm -hmm. in the end probably should have had uh plug doors instead of these outward opening doors mm -hmm. and avoid the problem altogether but that's a that's a separate discussion you know they're just trying to maximize uh their cargo that they can carry but that's it that's turkish airlines flight 981 super frustrating like i said not only because they knew about this problem two because of an incident two years before it but they knew about this problem during tests before they even started yeah. delivering the plane two years before that, three it's, years before that. This was a super, I was like, what? What? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's absolutely negligent that this incident happened. And we were, at the time, left with the worst incident, worst single plane incident ever. You know, eventually it got passed. But so many people passed away needlessly because McDonnell Douglas didn't want to delay deliveries of their plane. There were several incidents involving the DC-10 after it first launched two of which we mentioned in this episode, which permanently marred the public image of the DC-10. The mm -hmm. DC-10 became known as an unsafe plane because, you know, there were incidents uh, involving in it. Mm. And 
it never fully recovered. It, it really did lose out. You know, that's why, well, it's not why, but it's one of the reasons that the 747 uh, and the Lockheed L-1011 became planes that airlines wanted to buy more frequently hmm. uh, than the DC-10. If you like skim over a list of DC-10 incidents, we've talked about a lot of them on this, yeah. on this podcast. I mean, we've covered... American Airlines Flight 96, Turkish Airlines Flight 981, American Airlines Flight 191, which was the one uh, from Chicago that lost uh, an engine, uh, United Airlines Flight 232, which is the one that uh, had the number two engine disintegrate, the fan blade disintegrate in flight, and it crashed in uh, Sioux City, Iowa. Like, we've talked about all of these. Like, these are all DC-10s. This is yeah. all within a few years of each other. The DC-10 eventually did become a safe plane, uh -huh. but it's really not flown too much anymore. I think for the most part, only FedEx uses it for cargo at this point. Oh, that's another one. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, the, the FedEx flight we did, I think that was technically an MD-10, but it's pretty much the same thing. And So uh, that's it. That is uh, Turkish Airlines Flight 981. This is a good time. If you're listening, um, you're traveling during holidays, tell some family about Black Box Down. Either show them our new animated uh, Black Box Down aviation explanation or just the podcast. Yeah, I think the aviation explanation, the little animated videos are like a great little bite-sized uh, way to show people uh, what the podcast is all about. And if they want to know more, I think like those just show like a little snippets that we're talking about. Like if they want to hear the full story, it's like, oh, well, you can listen to this <laughs> podcast. You can listen to the whole episode to find out what led to that and then what happened afterwards. Yeah. Oh, I also wanted to mention, we, I, I made a joke about uh, Tales from Stinky Dragon. That's a, me and Gus have a DD uh, podcast that we do with uh, several other Co-workers, it's super funny, and I love doing it. Gus is the DM. Um, you don't have to know Dungeons & Dragons to enjoy it. It's really just more like listening to a, a story uh, with voice acting and sound design. and um, It's really more just like a comedy, I would say, right? Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I can't stress that enough, what Chris said. You don't have to know anything about Dungeons & Dragons. It's just like sitting around, listening to people tell a story and make jokes and try to be funny. Yeah. It really, really is a lot of fun. Yeah, that's Tales from the Stinky Dragons. So you can find that wherever you... Uh, listen to podcasts just search for it yeah you can find anything black box down related in our link tree but tales from the stinky dragon you gotta look for uh on your own uh wherever you listen to podcasts all right well thanks for listening everyone all right bye